0: Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No.
1: Overall wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. How's Obama going to illegal immigration? Uh, uh, mean, I'm in society. that
0: world leaders laughed right. at new President new Trump. Right. 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 Trump can You know what it is?
1: My new slogan, 2020.
0: America Great!
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. I'm Drew Sheldrick and this week we're talking Pete Buttigieg or Mayor Pete, the man who would be the first openly gay nominee for US President should he secure the Democratic nomination. Buttigieg has been the Mayor of South Bend, Indiana since 2011. He's a Rhodes Scholar and Harvard graduate and an Afghanistan war veteran whose counterterrorism work has earned him a Joint Service Commendation Medal in 2014 after he took a leave of absence for his mayoral work for a seven-month deployment with the US Navy Reserve. He's also previously run for the position of Indiana State Treasurer and the Chair of the Democratic National Committee, all while still under the age of 40. This week, he found himself the subject of an elaborate hoax attempting to time to false sexual assault allegations, which we'll unpack with this week's guest in just a moment. But first, let's have a listen to some of Mayor Pete's meteoric rise from small-town mayor to proper presidential contender. <laughs> you know you have an uphill battle ahead when your campaign slogan is explaining how to pronounce your name. It's Budajed, the most interesting mayor you've never heard of. Your appearance (laughs) on my show is as part of the exploratory committee. Uh, We're exploring.
0: Yeah. Okay. Is that? (laughs) Yeah. You get known. You raise the money. You put the organization in place, and uh, as the signs uh, continue pointing to yes, then uh, one big day you have Uh, your. You are you're surging in the polls. It's it's happening fast, right? Yeah, I mean a month ago we were just trying to get people to be able to say my name. Thanks yes. for clearing that up. By yeah. The way. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. So yes. I'm sure you had same. problems your entire childhood.
0: Yeah, I can't even tell you some of the different ways my name got uh got said over the years.
1: Boo 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 get boo bu- boo bu- get
0: <laughs> but- but- guy. But- okay. but- egg, But But Like he looks built for the spotlight. Like even though he's from a small place, Hmm. South Bend, Indiana, it looks like he's ready for the big stage. Adorable to plausible, I think were the words that uh, you're nodding in agreement. Okay,
1: this guy is from a flyover state, but he went to Harvard. He went to Oxford. He speaks eight languages. He's a veteran. I mean, his profile goes on and on. realistically, do you think this country is ready for a gay president?
0: Well, there's only one way to find out. Uh, You know.
1: It's not a bad thing to come from a different generation. You know, my generation is the one, uh, our generation is the one that uh, provided most of the troops after 9-11. We're the generation that grew up with school shootings as the norm. We're the generation that's going to pay the bill for some of these tax
0: policies right now. And we're the ones that are going to be living through the impacts of climate change that are accelerating as we speak. So that's why I'm here today. Call me Mayor Pete. I'm a proud son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States.
1: Dr. David Smith is a senior lecturer in American politics at the United States Study Centre and one half of Trump Tuesday with Richard Glover on ABC Radio's Drive programme. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. The Daily Beast had quite the scoop Tuesday, revealing attempts to smear Pete Buttigieg with fake sexual assault allegations. Can you attempt to uh, explain this scheme for us?
0: Yes, so this was very weird and completely unsuccessful. Right. Basically, these two right-wing provocateurs, Jacob Wall and Jack Burke, Tried to find a vulnerable young gay Republican that they could use to promote a false claim that Buttigieg had committed sexual assault. Okay. This is so they found someone called Hunter Kelly. They apparently hijacked his social media accounts to make this claim, Hunter Kelly says, without his knowledge. And they said they were going to have a press conference with him. This completely fell to pieces when Hunter Kelly really realised what was going on and completely disowned it. So this pair has tried this before. During the height of the Mueller investigation and shortly after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, they tried to find women who would be prepared to say that Robert Mueller had sexually assaulted them. They held a press conference promising that a a woman who'd been assaulted by Mueller would be there. She didn't show up. Once Once again, women that they approached to try to participate in this, often without a lot of idea of what they were actually up to, very, very quickly uh, withdrew from it once they found out what they were doing. So this is another failed attempt. Given their
1: track record, it's probably not going to be their last. Uh, Jacob Wall in particular is no stranger to this kind of bizarre and shameless attempt to throw mud at anyone, I guess, sort of perceived to be opposed to President Trump or his office. Yeah. Where did this guy come from? Yeah, he is
0: a complete con artist although usually not a very successful one he was actually the youngest person in the history of the united states at the age of 21 to be banned from futures trading after right. uh, after some finance scheme fell through so he's very uh, sort of in some ways a typical creature of the trump era he's this media entrepreneur or social media entrepreneur who's built his name by building up a big Twitter following and constantly being one of the first people to comment on any tweet that Trump makes. He's known for his uh, outlandish and completely unbelievable claims about things that he's overheard in LA hipster coffee shops (laughs) about how everyone really secretly supports Trump. So, yeah, he's become, through absolutely no kind of talent except for – an understanding of how stupidly things actually work, Um, he's become this quite sort of uh, high-profile yet minor Trump-supporting celebrity. Now, one of the things that's come out about this in the last couple of days after an investigation by Will Summer, who really monitors the, the right, is that what Jacob Wall was trying to do here was actually to sell his services Um, for political bet-making. So there is a futures market in politics, well, there are many futures markets in politics and it's possible to make money by betting on political outcomes. So Wall basically had this scheme that he would provide insider knowledge to political bettors based on what he was going to do to sabotage campaigns. Right. So you attempt right. to influence the yeah. Trevor right, okay. So he saw that he saw that Buttigieg's star was rising. He saw that people were potentially starting to place money uh, on Buttigieg. He saw this as a clever way of being able to place insider bets against Buttigieg that would pay off when uh, he spectacularly flamed out because of Wall's slur operation. Um, I mean, he's got both financial and political motives. He and, and some other provocateur, there are so many of them, I can't even remember her name. They recently went to Minneapolis. Uh, to claim that Ilan Omar, the uh, Democratic congresswoman, had actually married her brother to get him a visa. So they were going to try to go to her office to um, present her with a a, a subpoena uh, demanding to know that she hadn't married her. This, of course, didn't work. Um, Then to try to get publicity for this, Jacob Wall fabricated death threats against himself He really is just an incredibly nasty character. Yeah, charming guy. (laughs) He's he's the embodiment of a lot of things that have gone wrong with right-wing activism really ever since the rise of James O'Keefe. So James O'Keefe was the videographer stunt maker who, as early as 2008, used hidden cameras and very selectively edited video to target uh, left-wing politics. It was and like Planned Parenthood stings and yeah, stuff he like, actually, Yeah, he was actually responsible for getting ACORN, a community uh, right, okay. organising organisation, completely closed down. So he was quite successful, with, although, although he's completely dropped off the radar in recent years with more and more sort of uh, desperate stunts, but he sort of set the template um, now, I mean, Dirty Tricks campaigns have been around forever, yeah. like Richard Nixon was particularly good at them, but they've really become accelerated. And uh, Wall's an example of somebody who sees this
1: as, you know, potentially an, an avenue to to fame and riches. Following on from uh, the Bretton Kavanaugh scandal and the growth of the Me Too movement, do you think we can expect uh, more attempts by right-wing operatives to really muddy the waters like this in the lead up to 2020? I mean, keeping yes. in mind that 2016, I mean, so much of that revolved around Trump mm. and Bill Clinton's treatment of women and Anthony Weiner's treatment of women. So is this going to continue up until 2020? Yeah, I
0: think we absolutely can. And there's a couple of things behind it. One is it's not just an attempt to damage people with sexual assault allegations, it's an attempt to damage the credibility of sexual assault allegations right, in right. general. So if you promote a false sexual assault allegation against a Democratic candidate, uh, even if you lose, you win. Because if it's revealed to be false, then the narrative begins to take hold that, well, politicians are just targeted by false sexual uh Assault allegations all the time, and this means that we don't have to believe them when they're made against people like Brett Kavanaugh or against people like Donald Trump. So it is a, it's a really. Uh, just generally sort of damaging tactic, which I think we are going
1: to be uh, used more and more. If Pete can uh, take any comfort for this rather sordid attempt to slander his name, I guess it would be that people are really seeing him as an actual contender now. That's staggering considering that two months ago barely anyone knew his name, right? Yeah, he's really interesting He has been talked about since
0: 2016. Frank Bruni had a column in the New York Times saying, America's most interesting mayor you've never heard of and why he could be the next president. I had never heard of him until last year when I was at uh, a panel discussion at LSE in London uh, where Leslie Vinjamuri, who's the a director for North American Affairs at Chatham House, uh, mentioned that he had interned uh, for her right. once. I was speaking to his very wide range of experience, um, but that was the first time I'd ever uh, ever heard of him, and certainly he has had a very quick rise. A lot of this has been around because he's got quite an unusual and quite an admirable personal story yep. as as you mentioned I mean he's done all this stuff he would be the first openly gay candidate he's also a counterterrorism veteran yep. he's a mayor in a red state he is he's highly educated not that that's unusual for presidential candidates he's he's not even the only Rhodes scholar in the democratic uh, field at the yep. moment let alone the only one who went to an Ivy League university but he captured the imagination of a lot of people by the fact that he speaks obscure language. Well, he doesn't really speak them, but he knows some words of obscure languages like Norwegian, as well as some pretty useful ones like Arabic, which yep. he, uh, he which... speaks. Seven languages, or something? I think it was. Something yes, or... although he has clarified that when he says he speaks seven languages, that's <laughs> enough to order a sandwich, <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> um, in in seven languages. So yes, he is a. He is a serious candidate now. We have to remember it's a very fragmented field. And Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have a distinctive advantage over everyone else in terms of their name recognition. The experience of the electorate has... With them, but of the other contenders, you know he's right up there.
1: A lot of his ex- success has been uh, attributed to the media strategy of uh, Democratic operative Liz Smith, who serves as his communications advisor. Mm. Uh, but saying yes to every media interview is only going to get you so far if you don't have much to say, right? So, so what is it that he is saying that's caught people's attention?
0: I think at the moment it's more his story and his personal qualities that have. Caught people's attention. He does have more developed policy positions than a lot of the other people in the field, uh, such as Beto O'Rourke, for example, who really just does seem to be a personality and nothing else. And he can also claim an executive record uh, that he can run on as mayor of South Bend. He is basically the technocratic candidate Okay, so it's his belief that we can go beyond politics and just look at things in terms of problems and solutions, and yep. we can draw on the best data and the best expertise possible to get solutions. That reflects part of, partly his background as a McKinsey management consultant. It was also very much reflected in the way that he was mayor of South Bend. And there have been some really interesting stories about his tenure uh, as mayor of South Bend. Typical of a technocratic politician, uh, he had some major successes around things like expanding the number of teachers in South Bend, um, expanding the number of classrooms, drawing investment to the downtown area of South Bend. South Bend, reducing crime, things like that. Although people have also pointed out that typical of a technocratic politician, this also came with costs. Uh, The homeless population in South Bend really increased without adequate facilities to take care of them. And when there was a large scheme aimed at getting rid of derelict houses in South Bend by essentially penalising the owners, it's been pointed out that this really the burden for this really fell very unfairly on very poor minority homeowners who were sort of invisible to the kind of data di- driven strategy that Buttigieg was was using. Right. So, as you always get with these technocratic uh, approaches, they can have really unintended consequences if not all of the really local, sensitive, on-the-ground information uh, is, is there to make sense of it. So, yeah, it, it it's the typical kind of mixed record that you would expect of a technocrat. Given the sort of leftward leftward turn of the Democratic Party, I don't know that that's going to be satisfying to everyone, but he certainly will be a favoured candidate of the kind of centrist wing of the party for that reason that
1: does like these kinds of approaches, echoes of which were seen in Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Uh, You've been a scholar of religion and its role in American politics, and I want to get your thoughts on that aspect of Mayor Pete's life. He's Mm. a married gay man who speaks very openly and honestly uh, about his uh, quite devout. Uh, faith. Yes. Um, do you think his faith may win over some more conservative voters who might otherwise have struggled with an openly gay man running for office? Sadly, probably not. So he was raised
0: Catholic. I think his father was had Jesuit training or was at some point contemplating uh, the Jesuit life. And, yeah, he was raised in South Bend, the home of Not- uh, Notre Dame University, one of the most important Catholic institutions in America. He says that then when he went to England and went to Oxford, he felt more and more Anglican. Right. And now he actually identifies as an Episcopalian and is a regular attender at Episcopalian churches. Now, the religious divide in the United States It's not just between religious people and non-religious people. It's between religious conservatives and religious liberals. So Buttigieg, no doubt, is very, very devout and has a very strong faith. Nonetheless, he's on the liberal side of Christianity. He's on the pro-gay, pro-ordination of women, which the American Episcopalian Church has, side of Christianity which politically tends to be more aligned with secular Americans rather than with conservative religious Americans. A lot of conservative American Christians don't trust the Episcopalian church at all. They see them as sellouts to liberal secular culture. So unfortunately, I don't think that he is going to be able to bridge the divide here, despite his Very strong faith, which he talks about a lot in the same way that Barack Obama, who also had a strong Christian faith that he talked about a lot, that he had to talk about a lot. Uh, was,
1: was unable to bridge the divide. It's interesting to contrast his approach to faith with someone like Vice President uh, Mike Pence. Both mm. men are from Indiana. Yeah. Uh, both haven't shied away from a sort of sense of public piety. Uh, they both have a spouse who's a, a teacher. Uh, but Pence has been dogged by allegations of homophobia for years, a lot of that dating back to yeah. his time as governor of, uh, of Indiana. Um, that's already generated some sparring between these two, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And, yeah, Pence is a very different type of Christian. He is a
0: very conservative, doctrinaire, traditional evangelical who has really used this to his political advantage in a state where there's a large voting block of white evangelicals. And even though the influence of Pence often isn't felt or often isn't talked about very much within this administration, certainly he is one of the factors that keeps Donald Trump aligned. Uh, with the evangelical block. So, yeah, Pence is a very different type of Christian who doesn't believe that Christianity is all about love and inclusiveness. You know, he, he believes it's about right behavior. Which does not include uh, homosexuality. so being being against gay marriage is absolutely core to his political identity. Being against abortion is absolutely core to his political identity. And he has really used those issues along with the issue of religious freedom, the idea that conservative Christians feel very threatened by the secularisation of society. And feel that legislation such as the Affordable Care Act, which requires employers to provide their employees with health insurance that covers birth control, they see that as discrimination against conservative Christians. So a very
1: different type of Christian. White evangelicals seem to still overwhelmingly uh, support Trump in the United mm. States, which is quite astounding considering the president's character, his, his recorded yeah. comments about grabbing women's genitals, his family separation policies, his overall, I guess, sort of ambivalence to faith. Why do you think that they've rallied behind this seemingly unchristian man? Yeah, there's no seemingly about it. They know <laughs> that he's not a Christian, despite right. attempts to make it
0: look like he might be a, a Christian in yeah, waiting. Yeah. I read this hilarious book about him called The Faith of Donald Trump by uh, David Brody and Scott Lamb that tried to imply that he was what evangelicals would call a baby Christian, that he's on a spiritual journey to Christianity Quite hilariously, this book constantly cited Michael Cohen as an authority on uh, Trump's moral rectitude. So no, he's not. And most, you know, Christians aren't stupid. They know that he's not one of them. What they see is someone who will fight for them in a way that their own leaders couldn't. Right. So they had seen evangelical leader, evangelical politician after politician, as far as they saw it, fail to deliver what they want, which is to see Roe versus Wade overturned. It's to see a far, far stronger, even than currently, alignment of the United States with Israel. Uh, It's to see more and more conservative Supreme Court justices who can make things uh, like a ban on abortion happen. Now, Trump has actually been delivering on these things. If you're an evangelical conservative, you would be stupid not to support Trump at this point. And Trump made it very clear during the 2016 election, you know, I will fight for you. I've got the same enemies as you, these condescending liberals in the media and who dominate culture. You know, they hate me as well, but I'll fight for you because I'm not politically incorrect. And we've seen that Trump comes out with increasingly hardline positions on things. Not only has he recognised Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He's now also um, uh, recognised Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. So a few days ago, he was really escalating the rhetoric around abortion to sort of murderous levels, talking about babies being executed. Yeah. So he is giving them what they want. I think another important thing to note is that his support is particularly strong and always has been particularly strong among Pentecostal and charismatic Christians. So these are Christians who emphasise the bodily experience of the Holy Spirit. A lot of Pentecostal and charismatic uh, Christianity is organised around essentially celebrity preachers with media empires. These are the kinds of entrepreneurs that Donald Trump respects. And Pentecostals have always been fascinated with him because he represents such a dramatic rupture with everything normal. They see him as potentially the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And it doesn't matter that he's not a Christian because there are biblical precedents that they can see, such as Cyrus, the king of Persia, who saved the Jews and built the Jewish temple, despite being a pagan, they see analogies there as there's imperfect man who was sent by God to fulfill biblical prophecy. The prophecy that they're most interested in is the idea that Israel will be restored to the Jews, that the temple will be rebuilt, that the Antichrist will arise, which they often see in the form of Iran, and the apocalypse will begin. Right. And, I mean, Trump has Pentecostals advising him on Middle East policy. Uh, Jared Kushner was recently visited Shortly before a Middle East policy announcement by John Haji, a long running Christian Zionist Pentecostal preacher who in the 1990s made a sermon saying that Hitler was a hunter sent by God in order to drive Jews to Israel to fulfil biblical prophecy. When when audio of that came out in 2008, John McCain disavowed uh, him as a supporter, but Trump seems to have no such qualms. Trump really likes having these Pentecostal supporters around him who were his earliest and most loyal Christian supporters before uh, kind of mainstream evangelicals got on board. So Trump, despite being the least pious president in living memory, and you, you probably have to go back at least 100 years to find one less pious, nonetheless, in, in many ways, is perhaps more influenced by not just Christianity, not just evangelical Christianity, but a kind of fringe version of evangelical Christianity than anyone else we can imagine.
1: Despite uh, Buttigieg uh, being part of the LGBT community, it hasn't exempted him from uh, this criticism or I guess scepticism from the left of his party that he's still a candidate who comes from a position of privilege. He's a man, Mm. he's white, he's got a military background, Having served in in Afghanistan. Do you think he's going to have a hard time convincing progressives that he deserves or can be the nominee as opposed to a woman or an African-American candidate Um, in a similar way to I guess we're seeing some opposition to Joe Biden since he announced last week?
0: Yes, I think he is going to encounter that problem. And what I mentioned earlier about the way that a technocratic policy um, around homes and homelessness that was designed to just be the most efficient implementation of the data ended up placing a very heavy burden on African-American and Latino poor homeowners. I think that's typical of the kind of problem that he's going to face, that as a white man within the Democratic Party, no matter how progressive he is, there's going to be a lack of awareness of the experiences of many people who actually make up the Democratic voter base. Even, I think, within the LGBT community, there is going to be a divide between, mainly between white gay men and other members of that community who experience um, other intersectional forms of marginalisation.
1: Yep, it's there already. Well. I'm seeing the articles. Yeah, yeah. It's up. Yep.
0: Yeah, whose experience he won't be able to understand so well. So now I think this is something that he's going to really want to overcome, and I'm, I've got no doubt he will actually make an effort to overcome. Like he's he's a smart man. He understands. On some level, he does understand these issues. Whether he actually can overcome it is really a different question.
1: David, thanks again for joining us this week. My pleasure. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks this week to the Babamara Brass Band, Ketzer, and the Freak Fandango Orchestra for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.